the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and tonight we're going to visit two distant places, and you will meet two remarkable people. We'll start in the Amazon with Dr. Mark Plotkin, the co-founder and CEO of the Amazon Conservation Team. His profession is that of an ethnobotanist. And then we'll go across the world to Senegal and West Africa and speak with Molly Melching, the co-founder of Toastin. She has succeeded in having more than 7,000 communities across West Africa abandon harmful social norms. When they got to the health module and they studied uh, female genital cutting, and we, we do say cutting, we don't say mutilation, and that is because the villagers themselves asked us not to say mutilation, which is a word that means cutting with the intention of harming. Yeah. Because they were cutting the daughters because uh, they, they, they had no choice, really. It's what you did. It was the tradition. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, September 29th. The Rockefeller Foundation and a group of international public health organizations will put $100 million behind an effort to give healthcare workers in the developing world access to data that could help them make better treatment decisions. As the number of small and medium-sized gifts from individuals falls, many nonprofits increasingly are relying on major donors for support, a report from the Center for Effective Philanthropy finds. Despite declines in individual religious affiliation and attendance, more congregations saw increases in participation in giving than experienced declines between 2014 and 2017. The abortion rate dropped to a nearly a 50-year low in 2017, the lowest level recorded since Roe v. Wade. The J. Paul Getty Trust has announced a 10-year, $100 million initiative in support of education, research, and conservation efforts aimed at promoting greater understanding of the world's cultural heritage. And finally, artificial intelligence is already on a par with human experts when it comes to making medical diagnoses based on images a review has found. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Dr. Mark Plotkin of the Amazon Conservation Team right after this. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help, too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create more opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Follow them on Twitter at Upstart Collab. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. In a world where we hear a lot of bad news, 
there hasn't been anything much more distressing than the story out of the Amazon where there has been an 84% increase in forest fires over 2018. Often referred to as Earth's lungs, these fires are having a devastating impact on the environment and the climate. But there are other stories from the Amazon forest that need to be told as well, such as the toll these fires will take on biodiversity and the indigenous communities that inhabit the region. Aside from those indigenous communities themselves, there is no more knowledgeable expert in the world on this subject than my next guest. He is ethnobotanist Dr. Mark Plotkin, the co-founder and CEO of the Amazon Conservation Team. Good evening, Mark, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Denver, good to be here. Just to make sure that we're all oriented, give us Amazon 101, a brief overview of the size, the country it encompasses, etc. People tend to associate the Amazon with Brazil, and that's for a good reason, because Brazil uh, holds about 60% of the Amazon rainforest, but the Amazon reaches its leafy tendril into about nine different countries. Mm. For example, the Amazon in Colombia is bigger than New England. That's a lot of rainforest. And you are an ethnobotanist, and I have to say you were the first ethnobotanist we have ever had on the program. Explain what you do. Well, Denver, I'm not surprised I'm the first ethnobotanist because <laughs> there aren't many of us. An ethnobotanist, very simply, is a scientist who studies the relationship between people and plants, usually with a focus on indigenous peoples, usually with a focus on rainforests, usually with a focus on medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. And you started the Amazon Conservation Team, Mark, to fill a gap that existed. What was that gap, and how, what, were, what, what were you able to identify? When we started the organization about 25 years ago, uh, most of the conservation organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, where I worked at, were focused on rainforests and protected areas. And I saw that indigenous lands were actually greater than protected areas in size and were protected by thousands of peoples with blow darts, uh, poison-tipped arrows, <laughs> and uh, shotguns. So I figured this was an incredible niche which was being overlooked, an incredible opportunity for the conservation world. And we set up the Amazon Conservation Team to focus on helping those people protect both their culture and their rainforests. And he almost went out of business in 2001, right? Well, we had a couple of... Uh, Paul Newman came to the rescue. Speed bumps. <laughs> Paul Newman came to the rescue after 9-11 when philanthropy came to a halt, as did much of the Western world. But Paul Newman and Susan Sarandon, who was on our board, came to the rescue, bailed us out, and kept us going. Ah, fantastic. We're glad they did. Well, there's so many things to talk about. Why don't we start with shamanic medicine? And Western medicine is primarily built around chemistry and technology. What would be the foundations of shamanic medicine? And also, what's a shaman? Well, a shaman is quite simply a medicine man or medicine woman who uses plants and the spirit world uh, to heal. So shamanic medicine is based on two pillars. One is chemistry, just like our own medicine, Mm -hmm. what's in the plants. And we now know they're using insects uh, and other forest substances for healing purposes and also the whole spiritual realm. Uh, so in, in this sense, the, the, the shaman, the medicine woman, the medicine man is combining the function of the doctor, the psychiatrist, uh, and the priest. It's one-stop shopping, which is why sometimes we're able to heal stuff that our own physicians cannot. Yeah, that is so interesting. Well, you've experienced firsthand some of the healing power of these medicinal plants. Tell us a story or two about that. Well, I've experienced firsthand, or in, in one case, I'd say first foot on <laughs> first the foot, healing yeah. wizardry of the shamans in my TED Talk. Uh, I talked about a foot injury which the physicians were not 
able to heal. I had the injections. I had the pain pills. I had the heat. I had the cold. I walked into the village. The shaman saw I was limping, and he looked me in the face and said, take off your shoe and give me your machete. Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that Not sounds threatening. I'll forget. But he scraped off a forest fern, threw it in the fire, applied it to my foot, made a tea. I drank it. It went away for seven months, came back in seven months, went back to the shaman. He healed it again, and that's seven or eight years ago, and it's never come back. My goodness. You had pink eye, too, right? I had pink eye, too. I asked the physician who was on my tour. I was leading a tour. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'll give you some ointment and some pills, and you'll be fine in a week. I asked the shaman. He said, give me your machete. Uh, Trimmed the leaf off a palm. Blip, 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 dripped it into my eye, and I was good to go in about 45 minutes. So, Denver, who would you rather be treated by? (laughs) I love rhetorical questions. So, uh, you know, also much of Western medicine came out of the Amazon. For instance, beta blockers. Um, Tell us a few stories of of where this stuff originated and, uh, and how we use it today in our everyday medicine. My mentor, the father of ethnobotany, the late Harvard ethnobotanist Richard Evans Schultes, collected magic mushrooms in southern Mexico in the 30s. Uh, Not only have these revolutionized uh, psychiatric treatment, because there's now a new center for psychiatric research based on hallucinogens and other mind-altering substances just set up at Johns Hopkins, but beta blockers owe, in part, their origin to compounds in Schultes' magic mushrooms from the... uh, fungi used by the Mazatec Indians in southern Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're still finding new stuff found in stuff that was collected uh, 80 years ago. And just this week, Denver, we found two new species of electric eels. Uh, Remember that electric eels, which have been studied for 250 years, were part of the origin of the battery studied by Volta. And now we're looking at ways to develop hydrogel batteries uh, for medical implants wow. based on electric eels, which have been studied for 250 years. When these modern-day miracles occur in our world of medicine, the ones that originated out of the Amazon, do those countries receive any of the financial benefits? Well, the simple answer is that in the past they haven't. Uh, the, the current answer is that they should. Yeah. So this new model has been developed for decades and this sort of rape-and-run approach is no longer applicable. But the ways things were done 100 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years before, were different than the ways they're done now. So this idea that any type of development of new drugs or agricultural products uh, from nature is necessarily going to be exploitative, I think those days are, are long gone. Good. You know, I understand that you have just completed a shamanic encyclopedia. Tell us about that. I've been working with a fellow in the north East Amazon by the name of Kamanya. He is a YY Indian, uh, married to a trio Indian, and trained by a Sikiana shaman. So it's like uh, a three-ring circus in terms of his knowledge. He's trained in three shamanic traditions. And we have worked together with all these ancient shamans, all but one of whom are dead now. He has now become a shaman himself and has put together the first shamanic encyclopedia of the Northeast Amazon to take his 30-plus years of experience and put it into a book in the trio language, not accessible to white guys like you and me, (laughs) uh, for a handbook of healing in the shaman's apprentice clinics that the Amazon conservation team has set up in the Northeast Amazon. That is fantastic. It really is. Uh, 
You have said, Mark, that ethnobotanists do not need to read science fiction just because of the natural wonders you can see every day in the Amazon. Share a few of those stories. Well, what anybody who studies nature in depth like I do has found is nature is infinitely more wonderful and infinitely more perverse than anything (laughs) uh, we could come up with. And a perfect example is that of the cordyceps fungus. It's a fungus that lives on the rainforest floor. It attaches itself to insects when they go past and mm-hmm. burns a hole in the insect exoskeleton, inserts itself inside the insect exoskeleton, uh, eats all of the non-vital organs, including part of the insect brain, which then causes the insect to climb to the top of the tallest tree in the forest, eats the rest of the insect brain, thereby killing the insect, thereby causing the insect exoskeleton to split open, thereby allowing the fungus to release its spores a hundred feet above the forest floor. Wow. <laughs> that is some kind of story. That can almost be matched by the green frog. Tell us that story. My late colleague Lauren McIntyre was on the Brazil Peru border region in nineteen sixty nine, was rescued by a group of uncontacted Indians. Uh, They brought him into a tribal clearing, opened these palm leaf baskets, pulled out these giant green monkey frogs and began licking them and rubbing them into uh, cuts in their arm. Mm. Uh, When in Rome, McIntyre did the same thing and found these things were highly hallucinogenic. These are now being studied as a treatment for drug-resistant bacteria uh, and as a treatment for certain psychiatric disorders like PTSD, which seems to be responding well in some cases to these entheogens, these mind-altering substances, whether it's ayahuasca from the Amazon, whether it's green monkey frogs from the Amazon, who cares? They have therapeutic potential. That is incredible. Mark, you know, these indigenous communities make up maybe 5% of the world's population. So why do you believe it's so important to work with them? Well, these indigenous peoples don't have a whole lot of friends in the outside world. Mm. And as a Jew, I believe in tzedakah and giving back and healing the world. And the irony here, and I call this my spiritual boomerang theory, that the more you throw things out there in ways of good intention and good actions, the more it comes back to you. When I've had medical problems, I've been cured by these shamans. Can they cure everything? No. Can they cure some things that Western physicians cannot? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And they also oversee an incredible amount of the Earth's land. Well, some estimates say that 5% of the world are indigenous peoples, and they're protecting about 80% of the world's biodiversity. So if you are a conservationist, you know these indigenous peoples are your best partners. These indigenous peoples are an overlooked opportunity to protect large swathes of biodiversity. And like I said, they need the, the, the help. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talked about they don't have a lot of friends in the outside world, but they do have some enemies who are encroaching upon these communities and these lands. What's happening? Well, there are those who couch this in terms of we want to help these people. Mm-hmm. They want to help the uncontacted tribes of the Andaman Islands and the Indian Ocean. But when the big typhoon kept through, swept through a few, a few years back, they emerged unscathed where there were billions of dollars of damage on the mainland. The bottom line is that people who claim they want to help like missionaries actually want to turn them into little white people. Mm -hmm. So this kind of help, uh, I always put that help in quotation (laughs) marks because it usually involves helping yourself and destroying them in the process, which is a different model than the one we're trying to develop at the Amazon Conservation Team. And there's an awful lot of development going on. I imagine you have loggers, you have miners, you have uh, drug runners, you have everybody who are just you know running into their land. Well, development needs to be put in quotation marks as well, then, because yeah. development usually means destroying the natural ecosystems and the original people that live there. I've just come back from the soil fields of the 
Amazon. There's not a whole lot of jobs there. It's all mechanized. Mm -hmm. So what do you want, Amazon rainforest with hallucinogenic frogs and potential treatments for cancer or more cheap soybeans for uh, making tofu? You know, one of the greatest contributions that ACT, as you're known as, has made is helping the trio Indians first and then others to create their own maps to protect their land. Tell us how that all came to pass. Well, you know, technology is seen as the great savior by a lot of organizations, but it, uh, any technology can be helpful uh, or destructive, depending on how it's used. So in 2000, the trio Indians in the Northeast Amazon asked us to map their lands, and I said, we will help you, but we won't map your lands. And they said, we don't understand. I said, because we're going to train you to map your lands. Mm. And we have now done this with 55 different tribes throughout South America. The perfect marriage of ancient shamanic wisdom and 21st century U.S. technology and know-how. And what are some of the benefits of them mapping their land? Well, first of all, they learn to use technology for their own benefit instead mm -hmm. of the old Western model of we're going to give you stuff. Saying, no, we're not going to give you stuff. We're going to train you how to use stuff. Uh, such a great is, lens you have in terms of saying we're not going to do it. We're going to show you how to do it. You do it. You have ownership of it. A very important distinction. Yeah. And, you know, there are two schools of thought here. One is give them technology because it'll only be good. The other is give them no technology because we're going to spoil them. We like to see this as a middle ground. It's helping them empower themselves. Tell us a little bit about the fires that are going on in the Amazon now. Is, did you see this coming? It's a terrible situation. There were 74,000 fires uh, in the Amazon documented in the last year. So in a sense, I saw it coming because as you destroy the Amazon, as it dries out, it becomes more susceptible to fires. So it's been a worrisome situation, and it sets off an unvirtuous cycle of more fires, more destruction, more drying, more fires, more destruction. However, it's not too late, and there are creative ways of addressing this, which we at the Amazon Conservation are trying to do. For example, I'm trying to raise the money to create an indigenous fire brigade, indigenous firefighters. So once again, using the ACT model, it's not the white guys uh, or the black guys or the yellow guys parachuting in and fixing the problem. It's training them how to seize control of their own environmental destiny and battle it on their own terms with the help, with the training, with the equipment that they need from the outside world. Yeah, and these trees are so susceptible because they're not fire-resistant because there have been so few fires there that they have thin barks, and therefore those protective tissues really can get damaged. In a virgin rainforest with lots of rain, fire is not an immediate threat. As things dry out and as you get what we call the edge effect, which is dry lands all around it, it, create, it creates a greater threat. But virgin rainforest, when it burns, for the most part, burns slow and burns low, which is why you really can't document it from satellites because mm. it's along the ground. So it's more complicated than some in the media have portrayed it, but it's truly a dangerous situation. It's a downward spiral of fire, drought, and tree death that we're battling. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is there anything else about these fires that somebody like me who follows the news might be missing because it's not being covered in the mainstream media? One of the untold or undertold story is the impact on the indigenous people. So this is their home. So obviously yeah. it impacts them. One of the essentially untold stories is about 30 tribes, uh, 30 of the uncontacted tribes, of which we think there are about 70 in the Amazon, or indirectly threatened by these fires. So everybody's focused on the fires and the great graphics, but it's the uncontacted people that, frankly, are worrying me the most. Yeah. 
And I know another one of your favorite lines is you said the Amazon holds the answer to questions that we haven't even asked yet, and those answers are disappearing along with these fires. The answer to questions we have not even asked are in the minds and the souls of some of these indigenous peoples, in particular some of these uncontacted peoples. I just published a paper called How We Know What We Don't Know. Mm. How do you know what uncontacted peoples don't know or do know? And the answer is look at the people that have been recently contacted and extrapolate from there. And I give the example of a new drug which could revolutionize the treatment of high blood pressure, which is a real problem in uh, a rapidly aging society. Uh, I give the example of the magic frog, which could revolutionize certain aspects of treatment of psychiatric diseases like PTSD or stress or insomnia. And so by that, we can extrapolate and know that these uncontacted peoples know a lot, even if we don't know exactly what they know. Right. You lick that magic frog, and all of a sudden, your blood pressure goes through the roof, right? (laughs) (laughs) So they say. So they say. (laughs) You know, you mentioned a a moment ago uh, about Professor Richard Schultes. So I'd be interested in terms of what is the importance of somebody like you or anybody having a mentor? And tell us a little bit about him. I think that everybody needs a mentor, mm-hmm. and I was very fortunate to, at the age of, the, of 19, discover mine. I wandered into a classroom at Harvard in the night school, uh, a course on the botany and chemistry of hallucinogenic plants, as being the end of the 60s in a cultural sense that sure. had appeal at the time. But I fell under the sway of this extraordinary man who'd gone to the Amazon in 1941 and essentially went native for over a decade. Mm. And that set me on my life's path. I think a mentor can be a teacher. A mentor can be your mom, your dad, uh, somebody you meet at a cocktail party. But we all need mentors. We're all uh, conducting our hero's journey. We're all the protagonist in our own movie. And the mentor plays a fundamental role. Well, it's great to have you here now, but you're going back to the Amazon quite soon again. Um, What's your day-to-day life like when you're down there? Well, the best part when I'm down there is when I'm in the villages and you wake up when the sun comes up before it gets hot and you have uh, a quick bite of something and you head into the bush uh, following the shamans in search of the plants or the frogs that heal. Mm -hmm. You're in the bush till about 2 or 3 o'clock when it starts to get really hot. Really hot, yeah. You wander back to the village. You jump in the river. You you jump in the hammock. You take your siesta. It's very civilized. And you wake up when it cools off. And then you document the information. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to the future of these indigenous communities? You know, Denver, people ask me when it comes to the Amazon, is the glass half full or is it half empty? And the obvious answer is any glass that's half full is half empty (laughs) and vice versa. So there's reasons for hope. There's reasons for pessimism. The battle has been joined, but the outcome has not been decided. And that's my battle every single day. Yeah, I got you. Let me close with this, Mark. You know, at the heart of what you do is changing the landscape of power as it currently exists. And through your work, uh, decades of working with the indigenous cultures of the Amazon, is there anything that you've learned about changing that dynamic that would be relevant, relevant and applicable to the inequality and, and wealth gap that exists in this country and around the world today? You know, Denver, I recently saw a meme that I'll never forget on the internet, and it was a picture of a bunch of people uh, basically protesting against immigration, and they're all holding iPhones which were invented by the son of a Syrian immigrant. (laughs) The point being is that people have a natural genius, 
and the indigenous peoples with whom I've had the honor and pleasure to work have simply not had the opportunities that you and I have had. So in terms of changing the landscape of power, it's giving voice to these people. It's giving them access to technology. A colleague of mine during an ayahuasca vision during a ceremony in Amazon said she saw me and other ethnobotanists as Trojan horses who would go into the corridors of power like the headquarters of Google or Apple and open would be the stomach and out would pour the shamans. <laughs> so in a sense... Uh, my job is to give these people the megaphone to address the world, to address the tech community, to address the philanthropic community, and let them work their very real magic on their own behalf and ultimately on ours as well. Give them voice. Give them a voice. Well, Dr. Mark Plotkin, the co-founder and CEO of the Amazon Conservation Team, thanks so much for a fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about your work, um, some of the things that you've just described, and how can they financially support this if they're so inclined to do so? The easy way to look at more of the information which I've presented uh, in our interview is to look at our website, www.amazonteam.org, or look me up, Mark Plotkin. I'm easy to find on the web. Look at my TED Talk on how to protect uncontacted peoples. And I hope people will help us develop an indigenous fire brigade uh, so these people can combat their fire on their own land, in their own forest, on their own terms. And you have a new book coming out? What's that going to be? I have a new book called The Amazon, What Everybody Needs to Know. The publication date is March of 2020. Well, thanks, Mark. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Denver, great to be here. Thank you. Mark, how do you respond to the idea that we have learned everything that there is to learn about the Amazon? Denver, in the last week, we found the tallest tree in the Amazon, and when world records are exceeded, it's usually by a foot or a meter. This is 100 feet taller than any tree known in the Amazon. In the last week, we found two new species of electric eels. Electric eels were uh, described by Linnaeus over 250 years ago, and these offer the potential to create new hydrocell batteries. This is in the last week. And if you can find new species 100 feet taller than anything known, and you can find new species of electric eel, which are eight foot-long slabs of meat sending out electric charges. Imagine what's out there in the microbial world. Where was the tree found? The tree was found in the northeast Amazon, actually quite near where I work in the Jari River Basin. The electric eel was found in the southern half of the Amazon, which is where most of the fires are taking place. It makes it, You make it sound like we're in the early innings still. Well, hopefully we're in the early innings. They don't close down the game early in, in, uh, because of rain or because of fire. Well, Dr. Mark Plotkin, the co-founder and CEO of the Amazon Conservation Team, thanks so much for a fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about your work, um, some of the things that you've just described, and how can they financially support this if they're so inclined to do so? The easy way to look at more of the information which I've presented uh, in our interview is to look at our website, www.amazonteam.org, or look me up, Mark Plotkin. I'm easy to find on the web. Look at my TED Talk on how to protect uncontacted peoples. And I hope people will help us develop an indigenous fire brigade uh, so these people can combat their fire on their own land, in their own forest, on their own terms. And you have a new book coming out? What's that going to be? I have a new book called The Amazon, What Everybody Needs to Know. The publication date is March of 2020. Well, thanks, Mark. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Denver, great to be here. Thank you. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. 
Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizofGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Can you help me remember how to smile? We all try to change our own behavior. It's hard. Or we may attempt to modify that of our child. That's even harder. And what about trying to sway a friend or an acquaintance with different political beliefs to look at things the way you do? Well, we all know that's impossible. So what then about changing long-standing social norms, steeped in history and tradition of an entire community? As daunting as that may sound, it's what my next guest and the organization that she founded has done around issues such as human rights, female genital cutting, and child marriage. She is Molly Melching, the founder of Toast, and good evening, Molly, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. So nice to be here. Well, it's a light to have you here. Give us a snapshot of Tostan's mission. Tostan's mission is to support communities to realize their own vision for well-being. Tostan is a word that a professor whom I worked with when I first came to Senegal thought was so important. He told me that this word Tostan, which is a Wolof word, means the actual, the the breakthrough when a chick (laughs) breaks through the egg and is able to walk on its own. And he said that egg is nurtured with the nutrients and the blood of the the mother who sits on the egg. And this is, he said, what needs to happen in Africa. People need to be nurtured with their own culture, their own language. And when they break through and get out and share with others um, and with the confidence of their own language and their culture, then, he said, we will go for true development in Africa his name was Sheranta Jop, mm-hmm. whom all Senegalese know, admire as being one of the great African intellectuals, great African thinkers. And I had the great honor of being able to work with him for 10 years. Yeah, and he gave you a great word to describe <laughs> your organization. It is absolutely pitch perfect. Well, you were born in Texas and you were raised in Missouri and in Illinois. So in 1974, you went to Senegal. What brought you there in the first place? I went to Senegal because I was uh, at the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. I was in the French department, and I had started working on um, what we called expanded French studies, which meant we looked at African literature in Francophone countries. And I get, became very interested in uh, Africa because I, I saw the people I was meeting the professors I had were very different. They had a very different approach. They were very welcoming and open. And I thought, wow, this sounds like a totally different culture than the one I'm experiencing here in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought I would love to go to Africa one day. And guess what? I was doing my master's. I was teaching um, at the University of Illinois and, and uh, as I got my master's. And they s- decided that first year ever to have an exchange program with Senegal. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew I was very interested in in African literature, and they said, Molly will, I'm sure, be the one who applies, which I did, of course. And that was 1974. Mm. I went over for six months, and I have now been there 45 years. Wow. Never left. Well, tell us a little bit more about Senegal, and what did keep you there? 
Oh, I love Senegal from the moment I stepped off the plane. <laughs> I can't explain it. It was like going uh, into a whole different land where I remember so well uh, seeing as I was going into the city, the the wind was blowing and the boo-boos were flowing. Um, the people were greeting each other and uh, clasping their hands and patting backs and smiling and laughing. And I, the color and the beauty of the, the people as they walked along, the children, seeing them dancing in the street. And I said, wow, people are alive. They're yeah. living. You know, I just left New York and there, I didn't see anybody on the <laughs> not. <laughs> Not in New York City, but mm. uh, where I came from, there were not many people on the street. Yeah, and yeah. so I thought, wow, this is a different place. It's going to be exciting. And I thought, hmm, I don't know if I will be able to leave this place. It might like, be for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just felt at home. Yeah, I yeah. felt good. I felt happy. Mm-hmm. And you learned the language, right? I did. When I first went over, I thought French would be enough yeah. because I did speak French. I had lived in France, and I, I thought I understood culture uh, from having been in a different uh, culture in France. But when I went to Senegal, I realized I got a bit frustrated a lot because, first of all, uh, I didn't understand what was going on, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand why people were doing what they were doing. And I realized that so many people did not speak French, even though it had been colonized by France. And people said that people spoke French, but really only 10% of the people at that time were speaking French. And most were speaking the national language, which is Wolof, even though there are other national languages. Mm -hmm. There's Pular, Mandenka, Serer, Jola, Soninke, major languages. But uh, since so many people were speaking Wolof, I finally realized I, I, I need to learn Wolof because as soon as I would come up with a few words, people would get so excited. And I, I realized that to, to truly understand what was going on, why people said what they said oh, or did yeah. what they said, that it was so critical to learn the language. And it was the best thing I ever did. Oh, I can imagine. Knowing what the proverbs mean, the expressions. I mean, just oh, a whole deeper level of understanding. The wisdom of the people and... Also, knowing what to do to show respect to people, what not to do, that shocks people. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, would be okay in New York, but not not here. Well, you started Toasten about 17 years after you had arrived, 1991 right. or so. Um, what was the impetus to do that? Because I had uh, volunteered when I was at the University of Dakar. At that time, it was called University of Dakar. Afterwards, they took the name of my professor, University Sher Job. But at the time, I was at the University of Dakar, and I volunteered, as I often did when I was at the University of Illinois. Um, I decided to volunteer with children, and I was very upset to see that the children did not have any books that really were about their own culture Um, They were books imported from France about riding the metro or how you can build snowmen and Mm -hmm. really didn't apply to Senegal. (laughs) Right. So I started a children's center. I had – after I'd been in Senegal two years, I got in the Peace Corps. I started a children's center where I was working for six years, really uh, trying to promote African books for African children. And we had African writers and illustrators who came and I had gotten books from all over the world with African stories illustrated and giving good examples of what they could do. And uh, as we did that, we also did a radio program. Went all over Senegal. 
and recorded the stories and songs and activities of children. And by doing that, I got a real insight into the life of the villagers. Um, and after I had been in the center for six years, we decided to take that center out to a village. And actually, we were, we were only going to go for four months to the village. We ended up staying there three years mm-hmm. because the people that were in this village, no one had ever been to school. And they wanted so desperately to learn to read and write and to also get new information and skills they needed because um, I was in a wonderful village. It's called Sam Njai, which was near the city of Chess. And there had been other projects around Sam Njai. And quite frankly, many and most had failed. Uh, there were health centers that were now inha- inhabited by chickens and goats and donkeys, and the beds were gone, and the wells uh, had not been constructed properly because some of the sacks of cement had been stolen, and they felt that they needed preparation before these projects came in with the millet machines that were broken down now, mm-hmm. and the wells, and, the, and, and management skills. And it wasn't in their village, but it was in a nearby village. And they said, you know, I, we, if you could just teach us some of this, you know, to read and write, to be able to manage our projects, to be able to do budgets and to follow through and, and, and know about math. We know how to math, do math um, mentally, but we need to write things down. Yeah. So we started teaching in their language, in Wolof. And guess what? When you teach people in their own language, they learn very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, the formal school was all in French, and the children were having, and to this day, have a great deal of difficulty going into school after have not having seen children's books in their own language, mm-hmm. not knowing what books are, we not knowing what reading is, and... You know, going teach, learning in another language is very difficult. So we started, and wow, they took off. And they started writing proposals. Wow. And they started, uh, you know, I insisted. I went to the embassy. They had small projects. And I said, this, this proposal is in Wolof. <laughs> and they said, well, we can't read Wolof. I said, well, you better. Better learn. <laughs> because this comes from the people. Yeah, yeah. And their voice. It is them. They are the ones who wrote this. So you... You need to write it. And I said, if you want, I can sit and translate it for you. But I would rather you <laughs> find a way. Yeah, yeah. And they did. And they funded this. And them. what we realized is that so much of the, the projects that I was seeing that had failed because people had come in from the outside just assuming mm-hmm. that this is what people want. So we just give them wells. We give them a health center. We give them a millet machine. Then, you know, they'll, they'll be okay. That's right. We but can leave and they'll be fine. They'll, we That's can right. leave. We're they gonna, come in. We'll fix it for them. <laughs> <laughs> they come in and they, 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 do, they may manage it for the people for a year or two. And then they leave and, you know, people are like, hey, you know, we, did, we didn't get the skills. And, and yeah, to do it ourselves. To do it ourselves. So, so um, after having lived through that experience with the villagers themselves, we put together a program. And this is a basic education program um, and how to come together, how to first start with, and this is what was so different, rather than me going in and saying, oh, you have so many problems, you need this and you need that and whatever, which is, I'm sorry to say, what a lot of 
development agents and workers uh, There's do. no doubt about it. And particularly 30 years ago. I think that's what all of them did. Particularly. And let me just say, you know, good intentions. Oh, yeah. Many good, good intentions. Um, some were perhaps not more interested in what, uh, you know, what will <laughs> benefit our countries in terms of getting mm-hmm. people uh, up to scale with, uh, you know, wanting to be consumers, et cetera. Yeah. But other people, very good intentions, yeah. wanting to help. Yeah. But not realizing that that it's so important to ask people what they want, what is important to them, and, and what are their needs and what are their priorities. And not go in saying, you know, I'm here to tell you this is what you need to do, and these are your problems. Uh, we immediately started and start to this day with what is your vision? Where do you want to be in five years? And most importantly, what are the values that are important to you? What do you want to maintain within your uh, your development process yeah. that are so key to your um, thriving, thriving and under very difficult well, conditions? Well, it's that, it's that realization you bring that these people are the experts on their own lives. Oh. And that's really the heart of your com- uh, community empowerment program. Talk a little bit about the core tenets of that program. Actually, the, the visioning process is the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, of course, am not the one who goes into the villages. We have uh, community facilitators, we call them. They facilitate the dialogue among the community. And we open two classes, one for adults and one for youth. We made a big mistake in the beginning. We found that if we just did the adults, the youth were not exactly on board with a lot of things that were going on. And when we did just for the youth, well, the adults were saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's going on there? (laughs) So we always do both. Mm -hmm. And they are classes uh, that are held, but in a different way than formal school. They follow the schedule of the villagers because they are very active in the fields and in other activities to make enough money to survive. Uh, These are villages that are remote and resource poor most often. Those are the villages where we're working Mm -hmm. uh, in West Africa. And we start with what do you want? What what is your vision? Uh, What are the positive aspects of your community? What are the things you would like to maintain as you do go through this development process? And then we look at how would you like to organize Mm -hmm. to achieve these goals that you're setting? And uh, what are the important things to maintain, like unity, family, um, generosity, those things that are so important in Africa, the values, you Mm -hmm. know? And how can we maintain those as we go along and, and, and look at where you want to go and how you're going to organize to achieve that? And then we get into things like leadership and um, problem solving. How can we do collective problem solving? And probably one of the most important uh, aspects of our program is teaching uh, human rights. We, we worked for eight years without introducing this module on human rights into the program and when we did finally introduce it, because we were doing a module specifically on health for women that we had introduced, uh, we realized that you can't do information on health without doing something around people understanding that they do have the right to health, mm-hmm. but they have responsibilities. If they have those rights, they also have responsibilities. And we developed a very simple module um, but that lasts for about three months, <laughs> so it's very, very important, on what we call the principles for human dignity. That's what we call them. 
they're not any uh, articles from human rights instruments with lots of legal jargon that people don't understand. They're very simple. Yeah. Everyone has the right to be free from all forms of discrimination. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a responsibility also not to discriminate. And everyone has the right to be free from all forms of violence. But also we have a responsibility mm-hmm. not to be violent. And each one of these principles, there, there are 19 major principles that we that we, we pulled out of uh, many human rights instruments, seven major human rights instruments. And we look at those, and each one of these principles is a session where people really discuss and see, do they feel that this is good? Yeah. Uh, does it go along? Is it aligned with their religion? Mm-hmm. And we use verses from the Quran because, of course, we're in a country that is 94% Muslim. And in all of the countries where we work in West Africa, they're Muslim countries. And that is very important. And then once people decide and come to consensus around that being very important, then they look at, are we violating this in any way? And what can we do? What actions can we take to stop this? Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a very important component. And then we go on to, in the next modules, to look at health and hygiene, and all referring back to the human rights principles, of course. And then we ha- that is the first year. And the second year is doing literacy learning and um, project management skills. We teach people how to use SMS texting in order to uh, practice their literacy skills. That was a big innovation, one that was very uh, welcome in the communities because everybody – now has a phone. Mm-hmm. Has a everybody. Yeah. <laughs> People don't realize that everybody does. Well, let's go back to that first year okay. with the health and hygiene module. And perhaps the achievement that Tosin is best known for is helping communities abandon the practice of female genital cutting. And, you know, I, probably a lot of people think you came in there with that idea to do that. But to what you just said, it really came from these women themselves in these community, uh, uh, you know, uh, get-togethers. Right. I I always tell people I was more surprised than anyone <laughs> when the women actually decided. I mean, I I could not quite believe it. And now you have to realize, too, that they had done the human right to health, mm-hmm. their responsibilities uh, around health, the right to be for, free of all forms of violence. And what is violence? They looked at what are the different forms of violence, looking at it as if, if violence is anything that is really not necessary that can harm people, mm-hmm. that can create uh, uh, problems or harm for people either in right away or in the future. And when they got to the health module and they st- studied uh, female genital cutting, and we, we do say cutting, we don't say mutilation, and that is because the villagers themselves asked us not to say m- mutilation, which is a word that means cutting with the intention of harming. Yeah. Because they were cutting the daughters because uh, they 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 had no choice really it's what you did it was the tradition it was that's that's important it brings respect to the woman uh, mm-hmm. they couldn't even imagine not being able to do that or not doing that yeah. and uh, women were really um, marginalized, ostracized. If they didn't, right. If they didn't, so mm-hmm. how could you They did because they loved their daughters. This was the reason they did exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. I say they, they did it because they loved their daughters and they ended because they loved their daughters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then 
again, it was not the initial goal of Tostan, and we were even in villages that weren't practicing FGC when we started. Mm-hmm. But what happened was the, the women in communities that had undergone this practice came to us. And they said, you've got to put this in the module that you're doing on women's health because we don't even know what happened to us when we were children. And we want to know uh, what harm that brings. We've heard that it people come around and tell us, you have to stop this. Yeah. But there's no way we can stop. We have to understand. Yeah. What's so, the why behind this is really the question. Yeah, why do, why we, we, do we have to undergo this? And we know it's a tradition. We know it brings respect. But do we really have to do this and and does it hurt us and what are the consequences of it in terms of our health so we did that we without judgment put that into the module i was very hesitant because it was very controversial mm-hmm. uh, at that time to put that into the module but at the insistence of the women of toston they said look you've got to do this, this is the women who want to know this you've got to we've got to do this so we, what happened was when that uh, we did put that into the module with, again, important was the human rights. They learned they had the human rights to speak out and yep. voice their opinions. You had to give them the foundation of knowledge. It, right. And, and it sort of a, it was the awakening of a new consciousness, of a, a, a new agency, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. that, okay, we've learned this and people are – the men also were in agreement that this is right, that we need the voice of women – in this development process, and so we now have the right to say we can end this practice if we realize it is not helping us to achieve our goals for the future because their goals for the future were health, well-being, prosperity, uh, and still living in peace. Peace was the key word, peace, Mm -hmm. family, um, generosity, understanding, and and, um, it doesn't align anymore with what we want for the future. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this is steeped in religion, or so they think, until they find out that, it isn't. Right. And, and then they had not questioned that before. They just assumed yeah. that uh, it was a religious practice. And so working with the religious leaders has been huge for Tosin. We've done that from the beginning. Very but smart. When we actually started doing uh, special trainings for religious leaders, which we actually do a lot of now. We do 10-day trainings for religious leaders uh, from all over. Uh, and But it, particularly in the communities where we work, what we realized, and they said for the first time, no, this is nowhere in the Quran. Mm. And actually, the, the, the actual study of some of the human rights principles with uh, the verses from the Quran uh, have led people to understand that Really, uh, there are so many things they misunderstood and misinterpreted, and it's been great to have the the voice of the the religious leaders, both women and men, mm-hmm. involved in the process of, of change. What has happened is uh, they have gone out, literally gone out in from village to village, uh, to work with people to explain that this is not a religious practice, and anything that harms can even kill. Uh, our our daughters That's right. is not to be promoted. Yeah. It's rather it's to be stopped. That's part of organized diffusion, right? Well, we <laughs> call it organized diffusion. Um, and this was from an imam, actually, mm-hmm. a village chief imam. His name is Dimba Jawara. He came to me and he said, okay, first he was mad at me because he said, you should not be working on female genital cutting. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, I said, Dimba, go speak to a doctor. 
go speak to your your key religious leader, the the Kilifa, the high level religious leader. And also go talk to the women because he's so smart. Demba is one of my mentors. And I said, you are so smart. You will know how to speak to the women so they will tell you the truth. Usually the women would not speak about this. They were afraid to. There yeah. were a lot of taboos around oh, yeah. even talking about it. And when he came back, he said, oh, Molly, if I knew what I now know, I would have stood up. He always says, I would have put on my shoes and started walking years ago. <laughs> and Dimba actually put on his shoes. Dimba went to 347 villages mm-hmm. because, Dimba said, you're working with a tradition that can only be stopped, not by one person, not by one family, not by one community. It has to be the extended family, the, 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 the social network, the people that matter. They are the ones that have to be involved in this decision. And this is how Tostan learned about social norms. Yeah. We learned that social norms, is this is Demba's uh, wise teaching to, to our staff, is that, uh, and he's never been to school, formal school, but he certainly, I always say he has a doctorate in wisdom and social transformation. Demba says that, you know, social norms are those practices which are expectations by others in your community. And if you don't practice them, number two, you're going to get sanctioned. Oh, yeah. Ostracized. Number three, there's, they have value, social value. And so you cannot approach them and use the same methodologies you can with other practices that everybody says, oh, yeah, those are really bad. You know, throwing mm. trash in the street. No, that's not so good. So you can send out messages around that. But something that has social value, oh, my gosh, you can't, you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Because when people uh, all agree, oh, you have to do that. You know, hey, think of some of the social norms we have in America. You know, uh, if everybody expects you to come to a Christmas party and bring gifts and you say, come and you say, hey – I don't like this practice. I didn't bring a gift. <laughs> but what do you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> the people will go, ah, not next year, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it really made sense to everybody. And so Demba says, let me show you. And he put, as he said, he put on his shoes. And he walked to, to many communities that were part of his social network. Mm-hmm. He said he went first to the Derutu Sumabai. That is the blood of my father. So all the relatives on the father's side, and then to the Deretu Sumayai, the blood of his mother's, of his mother, and the, so that the the, the close uh, the uh, the close relatives, those are the people that actually were intermarrying. This yeah. is a question of int, int, intermarrying in, within the group, mm-hmm. and and so of course you could not get married if you were not cut because yeah. you would not be respected. You mm-hmm. would be ostracized. One woman told me that when. Uh, she was not cut, and she walked into the room with all the women who were cut, and they stopped talking. They all got up and left. Mm. Uh, she said, I would do wash, and people would say, okay, we have to wash the clothes again because they're dirty. It was considered you were impure if you were not cut. That's amazing, yeah. So you can see. I can see, yeah. So Demba says, here's what you do. You get all these people to come together. I go and work with them. I am see never, never Molly. Of course, that's the last thing you would do. Mm-hmm. Anyone from the outside coming in, telling people to stop what they're doing, 
uh, you can imagine well, the reaction. The old way we used to do it, you know, yeah. Uh, right. To many um, international organizations, yeah. And right. Not the way we used to do it. So many people are still well, they doing They still do it. it as well. That's right. At least they, they use, are a little bit better than they used to be, but they still it's a hard pra- practice to break. Well, and we've been doing training for – we've done, done training for other NGOs. We've had 565 participants over 26 seminars in the yeah. last five years. And it's surprising to me that they say, well, we have to do that. We don't have time. Yeah. And I, and I said, well, why do you have to do it this way? Well, the donors want us to tell people to end FGC. So we go in and tell people they have to end FGC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and again, pretty much yeah. – uh, and, they, and they use words. We're mm-hmm. fighting. Mm-hmm. We're going to fight FGC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say, but when, when you go in saying you're going to fight, I mean, when you tell someone you're going to fight – What's the reaction? I'm going to get defensive. Uh, exactly. And and who are you coming in here to judge me? Okay. I'm not, I don't appreciate that one little bit. That would be my reaction. And, and you know, that's what happens a lot. And people in Africa are very polite. So a yeah. lot of times they'll just say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as a result, what – And uh, then they, the person leaves and they say, oh, boy, he yeah. doesn't – he does – this person doesn't understand Doesn't this. get it at all. Right. Well, you know, as a result of this approach um, – over 7,000 communities have declared their intent to abandon harmful social norms across Africa. And that is quite a testimonial to Tostin. Let me close with this, Molly. Um, I had Jim Collins on the show, the author of Good to Great, recently. I know you're a fan of his, as was your husband. And his research strongly indicates that one of the hallmarks of a great leader is humility. And having followed your work over the years, I've always noticed how you've deflected all the credit away from yourself and to the villagers themselves. Leave us with your thoughts on leadership and the kind of leadership that you have practiced that has led to this kind of uh, sustainable change in Senegal and other countries across West Africa. Well, uh, I think leadership is critical. Uh, and I, I, I do think that the results we've had have not – it has been my determination perhaps, my perseverance – Patience, but it's most of all, I felt too. Uh, I think leadership, you have to feel that you, you really love what you're doing, mm-hmm. you're passionate about it. And when you're, when you're in a situation where you see results that you're, again, you're surprised by and, and excited by, and you really um, you want to do more, you want to, to do as much as you can, but you want to constantly say, you have to keep listening to people. You have to, 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 to work with them, and they have to be the ones that, that are solving their own problems. You can't go in and do that for them. And even within your team, within the, the team that is Toast On, that is made up of hundreds of people who've never been to school, most, for the most part, but who are development agents, who are really in the communities working for change and are so excited about that. And you want to do everything you can to to give them the credit because they are the ones who are out there in these communities, very difficult conditions. And it just seems so normal to me. But I think the most important thing is is actually listening to people, understanding what their values and vision are. Um, again, knowing their language and the language which conveys a whole different worldview than than perhaps those of the development agents who come in. And encouraging um, people, now I'm going through transition, others to take over. I've, I was 27 years, it's mm-hmm. a long time, maybe <laughs> too long. But knowing that um, things will be done differently, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Encouraging creativity and creating um, uh, an atmosphere where people are working but also 
thinking about their well-being also. I think that is probably something I um, – one of the things that I was given in my, my education from my mother who was a teacher – Mm-hmm. I was lucky to be uh, influenced by uh, a teacher who was who was passionate about what she did. So <laughs> it works, and she worked. And congrats to mom. Well, M- Molly Melching, the founder of Tosa, and I want to thank you so much for being here. Where can people learn more about your work, and what can they do to help support it? Oh, we'd love for them to go to toastdown.org. Mm-hmm. Look at our website. See all the wonderful things we're doing. The, yesterday there was an announcement about a woman who's now another one of the thousands of women who was elected to become a municipal counselor in her area and now is got a human rights platform uh, ready to, to, to advocate for the rights of their community. And also the book, However Long the Night. Written by Amy Malloy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells the story of those people who I was so blessed to be able to work with uh, over the years uh, and my own story uh, along with it. And um, th- th- I would say start with the website. Yeah. Find that donate button. The name of the book again is However Long the Night, Molly Melching's Journey to Help Millions of African Women and Girls Triumph. Thanks, Molly. It was a treat to have you here. Thank you, Denver. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of the Earth Day Network, as they gear up for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day next April. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.